In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What a blessing Christ gives and prefigures in the sending of the 72. Christ gives these 72 men to bring his word to the surrounding towns and villages. And by this, Christ prefigures one of the greatest of all his gifts, the pastoral office. Jesus loves us so much, he gives us pastors. He loves us so much, he gives us an office dedicated to this one task, publicly preaching the gospel of Jesus and administering the sacraments of Jesus so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by his death he has truly made satisfaction for all our sins. Luke says that the Lord appointed the 72. Don't skip over that word. He appoints the 12 and then the 72. And still today, Jesus loves us so much that he appoints specific men with specific qualifications to be our pastors. Pay careful attention to yourselves, St. Paul says to pastors. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Those are astonishing words. Not only that the Holy Spirit makes specific pastors and gives specific pastors to us, but that you and I have been bought by the blood of God. That's what the scriptures actually say. It's almost unfathomable. The blood of God. God truly purchased us at the cost of his own blood. What could possibly be greater? What could possibly give us more comfort and more hope? There can't be anything that anyone has ever done. No darkness, no wickedness, no weight or volume of sin that could ever even come close to being greater than the blood of God. And the Bible actually tells us that this is true. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus sends the 72. And why 72? It may be a subtle allusion to the 70 nations mentioned in Genesis 10, that Jesus will ultimately have the gospel preached to all people. It may also be an allusion to the 70 elders that ascended Sinai with Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, that in Jesus we see one who is greater than Moses, one who brings the new covenant in his own blood. And in fact, that's probably why these references to the 70 uh, cause scribes to change the manuscripts to say 70 instead of 72. 72 is the more difficult reading. Why 72? So it's probably the original. But there is a simple enough explanation. God likes sevens and he, God likes twelves. Seventy-two is six sets of twelve. Add that to the twelve that Jesus sends earlier and you have seven twelves. Seven sets of twelve that Jesus sends out. But again, let's not lose the forest for the trees. The point is that Jesus sends preachers because he wants as many as possible to hear and be saved. 
the preacher is the bearer of the gospel. And thus, whoever receives the preacher receives Jesus. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus sends the 72 two by two, fulfilling the Old Testament requirement of having two to three witnesses. And he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In the first place, it's a harvest. Jesus is sending out preachers to gather us in to the heavenly barns and storehouse. Our end isn't the foolishness of this life or the uncertainty of this world. Our end is to be safe forever with God. In the second place, what a mistake to get panicked about evangelism and then get bullied into all kinds of shenanigans and fads. Jesus says that the Lord is the Lord of the harvest, that he sends laborers into his harvest. In other words, the Lord is in control, and we need only be faithful. And the third place, prayer. Pray earnestly, Jesus says. It may be that some of the greatest evangelists the world has ever known are men and women who never went on a single missionary journey, but were simply faithful in prayer, praying earnestly that the Lord would send laborers. In fact, it may be that the only reason a church exists here, in a place like Capistrano Beach, is prayer. And think how abundantly God has answered the prayers of his people, how many countless laborers he has sent throughout all the ages. God gives so much more than we ask, and even when we don't ask, still he gives. Jesus minces no words when saying what his laborers and preachers will face. He says, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. There's a whole sermon right there in this one line. And here's the spoiler. Even though we know what wolves can do to lambs, the wolves don't win. Jesus sends out the 72 with specific instructions, most of which don't apply to the pastoral office. For example, he tells them, take no money bag, knapsack, or sandals, and greet no one on the road. Jesus doesn't mean that pastors should be walletless, barefooted, and antisocial, though usually we're one of the three. <laughs> Rather, the 72 are to move with haste, relying entirely on the provisions that God will provide through the houses that they enter. They are to bring a message of peace, which if not received, returns to them. And the peace that they're bringing is, in essence, the peace of Christ himself. It's a kind of proto-absolution. And interesting that they are to speak this peace not unto an individual person, but as Jesus says, unto an entire household or house. The house, not the individual, is the unit. And many things in our culture have led to a shift from the household as the unit to the individual as the unit. But from God's vantage point, husband and wife and children are all one flesh and one unit of creation. Even if you're single, you belong to a family. Family is the basis not only of all society, 
Family is the basis and essence of humanity itself. To attack family is to attack mankind as a creature, as a creation. So when a human society attacks family, we're seeing the suicide of that society. The 72 were to speak peace to each house and to remain in whatever house received them. In other words, they weren't supposed to go from house to house looking for a better meal and better accommodations. Nor, on the other hand, were they to feel as though they were freeloading, preaching his hard work and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Jesus also gave the 72 the command to heal the sick, which he doesn't give the pastoral office. Can you imagine how convenient it would be to have the pastor's office and the doctor's office be one and the same? Too bad. But then again, humans being humans, I bet more people would come to me so that I'd heal a stubbed toe rather than their immortal soul. I think Jesus got this one right. When the 72 did heal the sick, they were to say, the kingdom or reign of God has come near you. What does that mean? Well, the kingdom or reign of Satan is the reign of sin and sickness and death. Christ has come to undo that. The kingdom and reign of God means an end to sin and sickness and death. And the only way for this to be accomplished, of course, is for Christ to bear our sins in his body on the tree and thus make an end of sin. And for Christ to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows as his own and thus make an end of all sickness and suffering. And for Christ to die in innocence and thus to put death to death forever. All this is the kingdom and reign of God that comes only because Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to be enthroned on a cross and crowned with thorns. The preachers that Jesus sends out all preach that the kingdom and reign of the devil is over the kingdom and reign of God and his Christ has come and is coming all the more. To reject those who preach Christ's reign is obviously then to reject Christ himself. And to reject Christ and his reign is quite simply to prefer Satan and his reign. In which case, all who reject Christ and his eternal reign are choosing instead to have Satan and his eternal reign. From this vantage point, C.S. Lewis has it exactly right when he says, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. People in hell, or at least a good many of them, prefer the reign of Satan to the reign of Christ. Thus Christ warns and pronounces woes upon all who reject him in his reign. What else can he do? This is the most loving thing of all, to tell them exactly what they are choosing. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. And when Jesus preaches fire and brimstone sermons, it's precisely so that we would repent and never experience what he's preaching about. Worth noting, too, Judgment Day is much worse for some cities than it is for others. Jesus plainly says this. And obviously cities are comprised of people, 
So judgment day will be much worse for some people than it will be for others. When Christians say things like it's all level at the foot of the cross or all sinners are the same, they're usually trying to salve their consciences with something other than the gospel. To the 72, and to all whom Jesus appoints and sends, he says this remarkable thing. Whoever hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. When the Holy Spirit makes pastors and sends them into the church through the church's call, it is, of course, they who speak, but it is also the risen Christ himself who speaks through them. This is why no matter how clumsy the preacher is or how boring the sermon, <coughs> we must never despise preaching or his word. If the preacher is preaching the word of Christ, it's Christ himself who is speaking. Whoever hears you, hears me. Where would we ever be without the living voice of the living Christ? What would our lives be like without his gospel? Would you be on skid row or in jail or dead? More likely, you'd just be sleeping in with the rest of Orange County, getting ready to do your best at doing whatever you want to do, with no greater purpose, doing your best to ignore those earthquakes and the wrinkles around your eyes and the umpteen million other warnings that even if things are good now, they won't always be. What would it be like to have no gospel, to face a life that is meaningless, to face the certainty of death with no hope, to face the reckoning with your maker and the gravity of all your sins with nothing but justice in store? What would it be like to hear those words of Scripture spoken directly to you? You have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. I do not know you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Repent. No matter how much you love the gospel or say you do, you don't love it nearly enough. Not one of us does. When the 72 returned to Jesus with joy, rejoicing that even the demons were subject to them on account of Jesus' name, Jesus says this to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There it is. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in the gospel for you. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice, for God so loves you that he gave his only begotten son. And the Son so loves you that he has purchased you with his own blood. And the Holy Spirit so loves you that he has given you pastors to put the gospel into your ears and into your heart. God has erased all your sins and written 
your name in heaven. Can you believe it? Every last sin, gone. And there your name stands in heaven. Actually, really, truly, it's there. Your name is written in heaven. Perhaps one day you'll see it and marvel and worship God. At the same time God was writing his name on you in baptism, he was writing your name there in heaven, penned in the precious blood of Jesus that none can ever erase, penned in the very blood of God. Everything you're going through is temporary. Jesus' love for you is not, and how he loves you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.